what I want to do today is I want to land on a story that I actually mentioned very early on in the series, uh, which seems like forever ago. I, it's September 1st. I'm like, when did that happen? I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm still wondering what happened to May, let alone, you know, the entire summer. So, um, I, uh, I, I feel like this is, is, has been a long time coming, and yet, <clears throat> um, this series has really completely captured my attention, and uh, I'm, I'm interested to see where this is going to land and what you all think afterwards. So, last week, if you'll recall, we read about a man named Saul, who later became Paul, uh, and his encounter with Jesus. It was in Acts chapter 9, you might recall that, <clears throat> and it's a great story. Uh, that has uh, lots of different implications to it, and uh, we talked about some of those. So we were introduced to this individual named Saul, again, whose name was changed to Paul. But our storyteller, um, a physician, a Greek physician named Luke, actually shifts his story in the, in the book of Acts from, from the apostle Peter, the disciple of Jesus, Peter, um, to, to Paul. And it happens right around chapter 9 through about chapter 11. There's this shift, and you can, you can see it. And it's like the rest of Acts, the book of Acts, is a record of Paul's work. And we get Peter sprinkled in here and there, but really it's, it's about Paul's work. And so Paul and, and, and company, he has various people that kind of accompany him, embark on a series of, of what we call missionary journeys, so here's how it works. He would be sent out from a particular church to go and tell other people about Jesus and establish new churches. And he went on a series of these journeys, and there's a number of them that he went on. And <clears throat> um, he, was, he always started with the Jewish population, but then he would eventually start talking to non-Jewish people about Jesus. And so he would set up these churches wherever he went. And sometimes those churches would be just two or three people, four or five people, like what we would commonly refer to nowadays as a house church. And he would set these up. And along the way, there's plenty of adventure. Shipwrecks and pirates and all kinds of space aliens. No, not space aliens. No, <laughs> that's the David version. No, there's just adventure. There are things that are going on. It's, it's, it's actually exciting. Um, probably not so exciting at the time. He was probably freaked out like the rest of us and had to learn to rely on Jesus. But on his second trip, um, his second missionary journey, he arrives at Ephesus. So here's a, here's a quick map of the second, um, the second journey. Um, he starts out in Jerusalem, goes to Antioch, and then he's from Tarsus, and you can see where Tarsus is, and that's kind of modern-day Turkey. And uh, he goes up through that area, all the way around the, the um, Greek peninsula there. But then you'll see that he crosses the ocean, and he comes, or the Aegean Sea, and he comes to Ephesus. And this is where we're going to camp out today. Um, and you can find it in Acts chapter 19. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, you might want to turn there to Acts chapter 19 with me. I'll have it on the screen uh, just in case. But this is a fascinating story. And I came across it early in my study. I was hoping that we would get here, and I you know, decided to skip a few chapters. 
and get to Acts chapter 19 as we wrap up the series because I think it perfectly illustrates some things that we need to know. So let's read through this, shall we? Uh, beginning with, with verse 1, while Apollos, who was uh, one of uh, Paul's colleagues, was at Corinth, another major Greek city, uh, Greco-Roman city, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit after you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, which is just amazing to me. Right? So did you receive the Holy Spirit? Yeah, we didn't know that was a thing. Can you imagine that? Of course, they didn't have the internet, so, you know. Verse 3, so Paul asked them, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Remember, we had actually talked about this before. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, to believe in Jesus. Right? On hearing, it, on hearing this, they, these disciples, were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Ooh, that's interesting. Where did we hear 12 before? <gasps> hmm. That's amazing. It's, it's really a fascinating exchange uh, that, that Luke you know, puts together for us didn't even know that the Holy Spirit was a thing. I, that, that part just astonishes me. Um, I, I don't know how many times I've read various parts of the book of that. I don't remember reading that. I, I thought, that's in, thought that was interesting. And so what, what happens is Paul ends up making a, a strategic decision to actually in, invest some significant time into um, the, the people of Ephesus because it's a strategic city. It was kind of on the, um, the uh, edge of the sea, and so it was a major port city. There was a lot of trade routes that term, terminated there so that they could go on to eventually Rome and, and places, places beyond. So it's a strategic city. And so look at, um, here's verse 10. This went on for two years. Paul's actually in that city for two years. So that all the Jews and Greeks, those are the non-Jews, who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Isn't that astonishing? Kind of reminds me of, of earlier on uh, in, in one of the other stories we read, I think it was uh, um, uh, Acts chapter 3, that the people of Jerusalem would bring their sick and infirmed out into the streets so that the shadow of Peter would be cast on them. I mean, we're talking, I mean, you're talking about crackling with Holy Spirit power at this point, right? Resurrection kind of power. I mean, this is some pretty significant things. God did extraordinary miracles. Now, up until this point, if I remember correctly, we hear about signs and wonders, but this time, Luke writes, he goes, yeah, these weren't just, these weren't just like normal miracles, right? Which is just odd, right? But these are extraordinary miracles. There's some extraordinary things that are happening here. So, for two years, and, and by the way, that was about 55 to 56 AD. And, and I think, in essence, what Paul was doing is he's saying, hey, look, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Just so that you understand, this is what it looks like. I, I need to spend some time with you because you need to understand what this thing called the kingdom of God actually is. And he's demonstrating it. And, and 
And what I think is so amazing here is because of the time and energy and the extraordinary demonstration that he gave, the church in Ephesus becomes highly influential. And in fact, um, the early church fathers, several of them came out of Ephesus or spent significant time there. It is that big of a deal. The, the Ephesian church is one of those churches that uh, we exist today because of what happened there. Okay? That's how influential it was. Um, keep that in mind. So let me give you a quick history lesson. Um, this is the ruins uh, in, in Ephesus today um, of the Temple of Artemis, which um, <laughs> really very interesting story. So Artemis is a Greek god, goddess of the hunt, and you have uh, this temple that's built in Ephesus, and in the te- that temple, or something about the temple, it was larger than the Parthenon that's in Athens, which is a, probably a picture that you've seen, um, and it was noted as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was huge. You can just see a little bit of what it, of its grandeur there. To say that it's iconic is probably an understatement. You know, there are certain buildings that are associated with, with, with cities, right? Like the Opera House at Sydney, you know, got the clamshell thing going on, right? Um, there's that one building in uh, Dubai that looks like a big sail, that's another one. I, I, there's several others. Um, you probably think of them on your own. That's what the Temple of Artemis would have been to Ephesus. Iconic. Big deal. And um, because of its iconic nature, it dominated the landscape. I mean, you could you know, pretty much see it from, from most places. It was that big a deal. It was also a site, the site of where a riot broke out against Paul and his disciples. You can read about that in, in chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. So Paul's teaching against, essentially, Artemis and some of the local... Um, silversmiths who make little idols of Artemis kind of had enough and decided to go on a rampage. Interesting. It was the central identity of the city of Ephesus that cannot be underplayed. It's a big deal. Now, in 62 AD, so about six years after he left, Paul wrote a letter back to the church in Ephesus this church that he dearly loved and he spent so much time with. So he sends them a letter, and we have it. Uh, We call it the book of Ephesians, but it's actually Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in chapter 2, I want you to to see this. This is interesting. He writes to them, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Notice the imagery here. It's kind of architectural, right? There's little bits and pieces of it. The first thing that I notice is he says that that in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. And you, you think 
that he's not aware of the imagery of the Temple of Artemis. Right? I mean, he's using things that they would understand in order to make his point. Paul was brilliant at this. And so he uses this idea of a temple because it was so iconic for that particular city. Does that make sense? So it's this really interesting little turn of a phrase that he uses. And, and, and he's, he's saying, essentially, I remember that temple. I remember it. And you're rising like that, only better, just so that you're aware. And this temple is not for Artemis. This is for something else. Your temple is for something, something else. And then notice what he says later. Being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. It's not in a building, but in a growing group of people. So, yes, there's that temple there. There's Artemis. and right there. You're doing something more important than that. There is something happening within your, your body, your group of people, where you're being brought together to be greater than that temple, not for Artemis, not for some idol, but rather for a living God to be among you. That's a big deal, I think. Keep that in mind. And and what's more is he's writing this to the Ephesians, but the fact of the matter is the same is true for you and me. That's us. We're being built together like that. You and me, Thrive Church, are a dwelling place for God. And and it's easy to see when we're all gathered together, but the fact of the matter is that in a relatively short period of time, you are all are going to leave here and you're going to go to your respective homes. Maybe you'll go to lunch first, right? And then you're going to go to your respective homes, right? That's the church distributed. You're still the church. You're still a dwelling place for God. And whether you're gathered together, the building doesn't matter. It's the group of people that, that matters. Does that make sense? And Paul's essentially saying that. It's like, look, it's not about the building. It's about what God's doing in you. You're becoming a dwelling place for God. Now, before we leave this series, there are two significant lessons. Um, and I think Acts 19 actually demonstrates both of them. There are two significant lessons, uh, at least for me. You may have come up with some other lessons from this series, but there are two big ones. And by the way, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say this. Full disclosure, I'm still learning. Um, you probably heard me say this before, but as I'm reading through the text, and I probably read some of these passages before, they don't register because I'm learning, I'm changing, I'm growing. Hopefully, you know, it'd be more like Jesus. I don't know, you'll have to ask my wife about that. But the point is that I'm still learning and growing. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I don't have all the answers, but I know the one who does have all the answers, and so I'm just going to stick close to him, and why don't you do the same thing, right? So I'm still learning about this, and so I'm still getting lessons, and I've had two big ones. I've got to be honest. Here's the first. There are two works. Paul says this in this passage. And what he he ultimately explains to us is that there's two baptisms, two works. One is the baptism of John. And he says, that's the one of repentance. But John said that there's one coming after him that's greater. That's Jesus. 
And so we have this baptism of John and then of repentance, and then we have this baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that seems to be empowerment. Does it make sense? That there's this, this time when the Holy Spirit descends, becomes part of us, lives inside of us, and empowers us to live differently. Now, I think many traditions actually ignore the Holy Spirit. Well, they talk about him a little bit, but they ignore kind of the function that the Holy Spirit has in our lives. Or the other thing that happens is what they'll do is they'll mash the two together and they'll say, look, when you believe in Jesus, everything happens all at the same time. Okay, I understand where that comes from, but that's not what the text says. The text seems to indicate that there are two separate events, two uh, separate works is is the way that I'm describing them. And and there's, there's, there's this recurring scene throughout the book of Acts where there's a second prayer and usually the laying out of hands and then the Holy Spirit comes. You can't ignore it. It's just over and over and over again we see this scene playing itself out. Now, by the way, uh, before I get going on this, when I'm talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I am not talking, okay? I am not. Repeat after me. David is not talking about speaking in tongues. You don't have to do this again, okay? <laughs> you don't have to repeat every anymore. So I'm not talking about speaking in tongues. I'm not talking about prophecy. I'm not talking about signs and wonders when I'm talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, it may include some or all of those. May include some or all of those things. There are some traditions that argue that speaking in a different language, tongues, is the uh, sign of salvation. I do not believe that's true. I don't see anywhere evidentially in the text that tongues is the sign of salvation. However, it is a sign that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Do you see the difference? So some people are like, well, you're not saved until you speak in in tongues. I don't see that in the text. I don't see any evidence for that. I don't think that's true. And it's uh, most notably in in 1 Corinthians, which talks about these gifts in such a way that if you were going to find that statement, that's probably where you you would see it. It's not there. So I'm not talking about that. And in my experience, um, we get the baptism of John. We understand repentance. We understand, look, let's be honest. Every single person sitting here knows that there's something going on inside your heart. You got, you got hurts, you got habits, you got hang-ups, you got stuff that's happened in your past. You've done things that you're not proud of. Everybody's got it. We understand repentance. We understand that there has to be this decision. That's what I used to do. I'm turning away from it. I'm not doing that anymore. That's repentance. We get that. In fact, in, in the evangelical church overall in the United States, I think that's all we get sometimes. It gets all the press, this idea of don't do that. And a lot of finger wagging that goes along with it, right? This idea that repentance, we get that, we understand it, we understand the baptism of John, even if we don't call it that. In fact, sometimes it seems like that's all we ever do is repent. 
And I know there are certain traditions that come along and they'll, they'll say, you know, let's read the Bible. They read the Bible in light of the biblical passage. What do you need to repent of? And I think to myself, I'm like, okay, I understand that and there's probably some repentance that needs to take happen, but sometimes I don't need repentance. I need empowerment to actually live differently. How about you? I need that Holy Spirit empowerment to do something different. I need that second work to be empowered to live my life where I'm not tempted by that. I'm not falling into that. If, if repentance is the only thing that we have, the only tool we have, after a while it seems like it's groveling to me. And I'm not sure that's what Jesus had in mind. Does that make sense? I'm still working on that one. I'm thinking about that. I get repentance, but I think we need empowerment. Which leads me to my second point, my second big takeaway. The Holy Spirit is normal. (laughs) Says the guy who was just talking about extraordinary miracles, right? (laughs) And here's what I mean by that. Within the book of Acts, to be a follower of Jesus meant that you had Holy Spirit empowerment. Let let that sink in for a minute. The, The norm was that if you were a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit was active in your life. I mean active in some way, shape, or form. I think this is important. So Paul shows up, he found some disciples, some people who followed Jesus. And the first question is, did you receive the Holy Spirit after you believed? It's a simple question. He got a simple answer. And so Paul laid his hands on them and he prayed and the Holy Spirit showed up. Now, um, this is a picture of Leslie Newbigin. He's a famous missiologist. Uh, He taught at Fuller Theological Seminary for a number of years. He's very wise, uh, passed away not too long ago. <clears throat> and he, he, points, um, he points out in this particular passage, says, you know, Paul asks a simple question if they receive the Holy Spirit. He says, today, in, in modern times, it seems like, <laughs> this is kind of funny, we wouldn't ask that question, would we? More often than not, the question would we ask is, did you believe exactly what I taught you? Do you believe like I believe? That's a different question. Uh, was it me who laid on hands that you received the Holy Spirit? Because it wasn't me, then not so sure. The attitude that we have today versus the attitude that Paul seems to come onto the scene with him, when he comes in, he's got this attitude of, oh, you believe in Jesus? Cool. Um, so did you get the Holy Spirit? That's a very different position. That's a very different type of, of question than what we typically ask today. And, and by the way, I'm guilty of that question. Uh, for me, it looks a little different. I'm like, so you're a Calvinist? <laughs> right? <laughs> I thought that was funny, didn't you? <clears> hmm. <throat> But the point is, is, did you receive the Holy Spirit? That's a very different thing, which it, it, it almost seems to me, and, and this is worth thinking about, 
It's like the attitude that we bring to faith is that if you believe right, then you get the Holy Spirit. And that you have to have the right sound doctrines in order to have the Holy Spirit. Does it make sense? I mean, I, I see this all over the place. It's very subtle, but it's there. If you believe right, you get the order correct, as if it's some kind of formula. If you believe right, then you'll have the Holy Spirit. But I think that's not true. I think the opposite is better. I think, this is just me, I think the Holy Spirit ensures right belief. Let me say that again. It's not that right belief gives you the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit ensures that you have right belief. The, the problem that we don't like, especially in modern America, is that getting the right belief may take time. Right? The Holy Spirit's like a crock pot, and we Americans are like microwaves. Tell me I'm wrong. If you're living with the Holy Spirit and you're trusting God and His Spirit to guide you and lead you and teach you in a particular direction, then you're going to come up with the right belief. Do you see that? That's a very different perspective to take. I, and I've said this in a, in a slightly different way in the past. It is none of my business who goes to heaven or hell. I am not qualified to make that judgment. I don't want to make that judgment. But what I can do is I can trust that if you are on a journey with God and His Holy Spirit, that He's going to guide you and lead you, and I am just privileged to walk alongside of you and to help you as much or as little as you want me to be. That gets me out of a lot of trouble. <laughs> really does. Because it's not a incumbent upon me to change someone else, which I can't do. It is impossible for me to change anybody. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So am I going to trust the Holy Spirit to do that? Does this make sense? I think this is important. It is the Holy Spirit moving and actively working in our lives, guiding us and, and poking and prodding us a little bit when we need it and and allowing circumstances to get our attention on different things, I think that's where we end up with right belief. So I'm going to trust the Spirit to do that, to get us there. Rather than, that doesn't mean we don't preach sound doctrine. I'm not saying that. But it's worth thinking about. Are we going to trust the Holy Spirit to work in the lives of our friends, our family, our kids, our parents, our brothers and sisters, those people you don't like at work, are we going to trust the Spirit to work in us and to work in them and lead us and guide us? That's Holy Spirit empowerment, I think. It's worth thinking about. <clears throat> we trust God and His Spirit to guide and teach us into His wisdom and truth. And so it seems to me that Paul um, sees the Holy Spirit as evidence of a Jesus-oriented life. Then he asks the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Because he understands that's what you need in order to really follow Jesus. So, 
I'm going to return to where I started, beginning in the series a couple months ago. There's a gap, and I don't mean the clothing store. There's a gap between what I read in my Bible and what I see in the church today. And it's like the church is missing out. But more importantly, (laughs) there's a gap between what I read in my Bible and what I see in my own life. Full disclosure, what I am experiencing or not experiencing in my own life influences what what all of us see within the church. Because we are the church. Does this make sense? I see this gap. The evidence, the adventure, the power, I feel like I'm missing out. That the exciting things that are happening in the text, dead people came to life blind can see and lame can walk and all of those things are great but here's where I notice the gap okay this is just me being plainly honest as I can I got people in my own church who are hurting and there's sickness and disease and there's pain and suffering and I think to myself like great dead people walk but I got I got people who have back pain and knee pain and elbow pain and face pain and arm pain and God, there's a gap there. And that gap is becoming unacceptable to me. Do we believe that the Holy Spirit is still active and alive in the world today? Can we prove it? That's Holy Spirit empowerment, and that's real to me. I see that gap, and it's just, it's not acceptable to me anymore. And I think that the key factor to all of this, and I've said it a bazillion times, here's a bazillion and one, the key factor, all this is the presence of God. The presence of God. The Holy Spirit comes, God is present, and stuff happens. Hmm. It's an undeniable pattern that we see throughout the entire New Testament over and over again. Maybe you feel the same way. You may feel it differently than I do, but maybe you have that same sense that maybe there's something more to this than just repentance. Today is Family Sunday, which means we do communion. This ancient ritual that Jesus gave us. And it it struck me, um, as I was prepping for this, that in the Church of God, this is called, um, uh, a communion for us is a memorial. It means we remember what Jesus did, that he died and was resurrected. 
Um, that's the non-negotiable of Christian faith for me. If you don't believe that, then we don't have much to talk about. <laughs> and I, I think that every time we, we take the bread and we take the juice and we, we ingest that, we are, we are remembering the fact of what Jesus accomplished. But at the same time, at the very same time, this just struck me, it's also a reminder that Jesus is still alive and living in us by his spirit. So as we ingest the bread and the juice, it's a reminder that, that he is present. Now there are some traditions who, who make some pretty extraordinary claims about you know, mystically changing into the, the body and blood of Jesus. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying we remember the death and resurrection and we are reminded that he is still with us and he is still living inside of us. And so I, I really want you to take today as an opportunity to reconnect to the presence of God. Um, maybe you don't like that term, chasing after the presence of God. Maybe you like hanging out with Jesus or connecting. I don't know. Choose your words. But to go to the table, when you're ready, we're going to sing a song here in a minute, and when you're ready to get up and go to the table, you can go to either side of the table. Take a bit of that bread and dip it in the juice. And yes, be, be, re, be mindful of the fact that this is death and resurrection. But as you eat it, the resurrection means that Jesus is alive in you. I, I think that, that Dan said this beautifully in this prayer earlier. I am loved. Loved enough to be with you. To be present with you. So as you're, as you're doing that, um, take and eat it and say to yourself, God is with me. God is with my family. God is with my church. He's present. He's here. And I can reconnect to him.